captain has turned on the seatbelt light. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelts. Thank you. 20 memorable journeys, 20 unforgettable matches, two very different journalists. Where do their paths intersect? In the cricket press box. Welcome to Press Box 2020 with Bharat Sundaresan and Anand Vasu. Hello and welcome to Pressbox 2020 for episode 3. Last time we went back to one of England's darkest stars in white ball cricket. Now we travel all the way from sultry Calcutta to beautiful London, a very cloudy London I remember. And England's, probably England's finest hour in white ball cricket when they finally, finally, finally won an elusive World Cup. Of course it came uh, it was shrouded in controversy, confusion. We learned the term boundary count for the first time. I did anyway. And um, here we are. Anand Vasu, do you remember anything about that morning that stands out for you? It was another neutral final. You are someone who doesn't get too excited about neutral finals as we found out in our last episode. Anything that stands out? I think the difference between the Calcutta one and the Lords one is always the excitement of heading to Lords on match day. Um, there's a very different atmosphere to it. Whereas in Calcutta, your entire journey is filled with tension because uh, you don't know whether you'll make it in time, whether you, there's a lot of inconvenience involved in terms of where you might be stopped and have to get off. And then uh, finally you get frisked three, four times before you make it to that exceptionally high press box at Eden Gardens. At Lord's, uh, the build-up uh, is always very different because in, from the time you get down at St. John's Wood the tube station and step out, you see all the cricket people, as they call them in England, because there's people looking to buy tickets last minute, there's touts selling tickets, there's people selling you know, team jerseys, there's food, drink. Of course, there's chaos, it's, but uh, the chaos that you see in central London in St. John's Wood is slightly different from the chaos that you see in Calcutta on match day. And um, this is a kind of more controlled chaos and uh, the kind that I'm, I find I can deal with much more easily. So I always enjoy that walk from St. John's Wood because you kind of switch on to match mode, match day mode from the time you get down at the tube over there. And... It's a pleasant walk. It was a cool morning, like you pointed out. Um, and getting into the spaceship press box was not particularly different. Yes, there were people around, but it was quite smooth. And I was just happy to find that even as a neutral, I had a space in the press box. And uh, um, uh, a very good one with an excellent view at that. So uh, I, the build up to that game, the lead up uh, to the start of the game for me was a very enjoyable one. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up the chaos of getting to the ground at Eden Gardens. Uh, it was kind of chaotic for me though, because uh, if you remember, that's when we were doing the World Cup on Wales, and I was in a camper van, so I spent what forty-five days by then sleeping in that cramped space above uh, the cockpit, and we were parked very, very far away in Abbey Wood, so it would take us um, two trains to even get into like proper London, and then again get onto the tube. And it was a Sunday, and uh, on most weekends, there would be no trains because they would have some railworks going on. So we 
I'm pretty sure we got into an Uber at some point because we just couldn't wait uh, to get into the one train that would come every like two hours or so uh, from uh, Arsenal, I think. And uh, yeah, we, we reached on time, but I wasn't there as a journalist. I was the uh, or not a print journalist for a change, which I never imagined would happen. I was there more as a radio commentator because I was covering only Australian uh, or Australia's campaign in that World Cup. And I had colleagues uh, from England who obviously had a lot more uh, a lot more meat on the bone with regards to that final. So they were the ones who were actually covering the final itself. I was there doing some commentary for SEN, uh, which is kind of strange. Never thought that would happen. And um, yeah, so I did not have a seat in the press box, but I had a beautiful, uh, the, the, the whole, there was a big room to the left of the press box where uh, we had, I think my co-commentators were a bunch of neutrals, mostly Damien Fleming, uh, a couple of Australians, Adam Collins, and uh, and Derek Pringle and Jeremy Coney were the expert, uh, former England and New Zealand cricketers who, again, um, had a lot riding in that final for them. And uh yeah, it, it was. It would turn out to be a very dramatic final, but if you ask me for the first five hours or so, it didn't seem like it was going that way. It looked like a drab final, almost a dull pitch, uh, not a great, not a big score. Colin De Grandom was the star of <laughs> of the day till the till the very end. And by the end, I remember a lot of people in the press box wanted to um, tune into the Wimbledon final, which is getting a lot more exciting than what we were witnessing at Lords. Absolutely. It was that typical kind of day where the highlight at uh, the Lords press box was the cakes at the back of the box. It wasn't, it wasn't shaping up to be a great game. Uh, like you said, modest total should have been easily chased. And then after a point when New Zealand doing... Um, quite well then it seemed like England blowing it uh, it had both those elements but it didn't look like it was going to be close so I, um, to me really that first maybe 90 overs of the game is a bit of a blur and I can't think of anything dramatic that happened then it was kind of like a countdown to um, just seeing who the winner was how it was going to be decided because uh, we've often had one-sided finals at the end of uh, big tournaments it's not always that the big day is the best match of the tournament this tournament had its share of good games um, so I think even if it was a quiet final uh, I don't think anyone would have minded particularly but then it turned out to be anything but quiet yeah, what really stood out for me in the lead-up and even on the day was this outpouring of love for New Zealand and Kane Williams. And there was all this talk in, after New Zealand beat India and that with what I consider a much better one-day international uh, in Manchester about, like, you know, this country with such a small population, with no money, they've come so far. This is the second straight World Cup final. And I'll take an unpopular stand here and say that in my opinion, New Zealand didn't even deserve to be in the semi-finals. They had played very okay cricket. They kind of just snuck over the line against West Indies. They were thrashed by Australia. They didn't do well against England either. But they almost ticked the boxes you needed to take just to come through. Uh, it or They almost depended a lot on other teams not uh, or messing up their own campaigns, like the, whether it's the West Indies or even Pakistan for that matter. Uh, so... I, I believe that England deserved to win the World Cup, but it looked like uh, 
everyone who wasn't English and maybe even some who were English did not almost want England to win that final. So did did you understand both the outpouring of love for New Zealand also and this worldly uh, almost this joy that the world takes in England not winning World Cups? Yeah, I think this New Zealand team has been building up for a few years. It's not just this World Cup. Even at the last World Cup in Aus- the previous World Cup in Australia and New Zealand, this was the the New Zealand team was literally the. Uh, second team for everyone who was watching the competition after their own country and then it was because they were playing this aggressive attacking brand of cricket there was mccullum going hammer and tongs at the top of the order with uh, um, martin guptill and ross taylor and the others after went with the batting and there weren't very big totals in new zealand at the time and their bowlers <coughs> trent bolt and tim southey would just attack 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 and uh, mccullum is captain would give them four slips a lot of the time and they would do the job early up so they played a very attacking brand of cricket and very attractive entertaining brand of cricket without ever being nasty no sledging they seem to genuinely be happy and having a good time which can happen when you win but some teams even when they're winning can be quite um, in your face aggressive um over the top when it comes to putting down the opposition new zealand did none of that and in this tournament it just continued i think and it's undeniable that they punch above their weight in icc tournaments in terms of the resources they have in terms of um the money that they have in terms of the pool of players that they can choose from but in, in one way they don't actually punch above their resources and that they've always had very good teams and very good cricketers um they might have a smaller group of people to choose from but they end up producing enough uh, really high quality cricketers to put together high quality teams um i can't see why anyone would not like new zealand and as for england there's always a pessimism about england and there's always a um anyone but england kind of feeling i think this is a historic thing of cricket being a colonial game uh, a lot of people not of this generation but certainly of two generations uh, ago would um remember firsthand what it was like from you know stories from their grandparents and things like that of what it was to actually be under um, english rule so this was one way to get back at the englishman i suppose and in that in that's a sense that you get in pakistan and sri lanka and in india in the west indies um in maybe not so much in south africa or new zealand australia have their own rivalry with england so you can see why the deck is always stacked against england there um also weren't a very attractive white ball team till very recently they played a very different kind of one day cricket they're very old style one day cricket especially when it came to the batting they always seemed to be off the mind that you know keep keep wickets in hand have a dash at the end maybe get to 270 280 when teams or other teams had already moved on looking consistently for 320 and more and attacking through the innings that of course has changed and this this england team uh, this england batting lineup under morgan and with the kind of uh, thinking there is now play a, as bright a brand of cricket as any other one day international side in the world but there is historical baggage and which is why i think uh, people from most countries don't really enjoy it when england win yeah and, and that came through Uh, throughout that tournament the joy that people seem to like derive from england kind of slipping th- midway through that tournament when they lost to sri lanka pakistan and and again to australia at lords 
even though the focus during that game was everybody was <laughs> looking forward to the ashes but that's just australia and england for you and that pessimism that you spoke about came through even from the english i remember being in uh, press boxes and in commentary boxes during that tournament when uh, there, there was almost this feeling that every englishman in that box thought england would lose and that's what that, that's seriously what i experienced in that press box they were, even when england were in front and dominating a game uh, like they did against india in the league encounter uh, there there was this feeling that no 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 or at least they would talk about how nah but england will find a way to lose this game maybe they had in the past but to their credit after the debacle of 2015 when they did not even make it to the quarter finals i think to quote from the Shawshank Redemption there was a feeling of like you know get busy living or get busy dying it's also a line i've used a lot while describing english white ball cricket in the last few years and they did it they in my opinion redefined one day international cricket maybe not so much t20 cricket but from 2015 to 2019 they taken one day cricket up a notch uh, where in there was a time when people were talking about is one day cricket dead will it ever come back uh has t20 cricket overtaken it to such an extent that nobody is interested nobody uh has like especially the middle overs but what england did was they they went bang 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 at the start and continued to go bang 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 throughout the one day innings and i think they deserve to be in the final and win that world cup purely because they were the ones who kept one day cricket alive if not like breathed new life into it during that period and um, yeah of course they started playing like the england of old in the uh, middle period like i said when they lost all those games but they came back extremely well against india uh, and then look back they they really demolished australia and mitchell stark in particular in that semi final uh, in edgebaston Ed- 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 and didn't look back so i was a little surprised that not more people like jumped on the english bandwagon but like you said I think it's a cultural thing to not want uh, or a historical thing to not want England to win. Also not everyone jumps on bandwagons that quickly. I mean given that England had never won anything, they have a history, <coughs> excuse me, they have a history of losing things from winning positions, especially in one day cricket. And I think you give them a little too much credit in terms of keeping one day cricket alive. I think they caught up with the rest of the world which they were sorely lagging behind and they have a depth in batting that allows them to attack perhaps more consistently than some of the other teams but i don't uh, see them uh, as uh, trailblazers or taking anything up a notch i think they just caught up with the rest of the world they certainly did well in that last world cup and i've heard you say more than once that, you know, someone deserved to win or someone deserved to be in the semi final or maybe did not deserve to i kind of see it uh, more like either they did or they didn't uh, i don't think sport has that much to do with what you deserve as life you don't don't really get what you think you might deserve somebody else might think you deserve something else uh, there's a simple framework of rules and either you qualify for the semi finals or the final or you don't and then again in the final there's there are rules if you if you do better than the other team then you win i don't see where deserving comes into it at all we told you at the very start of this podcast that we are two very very different journalists we are very two very very different people it's up to you to recognize the romantic from the realist in this <laughs> um, like between the two of us so yeah you will get very straightforward cutthroat wisdom 
and life advice from Anand Vasu, which I have received a lot in the last 11 years. And it, it is a very, very good way of living life. But of course, you know how fantastical my life has been over the years. And uh, that's what drives me, this whole dreaminess, as uh, Anand Vasu asks me to move on. And we shall to the last five or seven hours of that run chase. At, at, at what point, like we spoke about Colin de Grandholm's wonderful spell in those middle overs where he got wickets and did not give much away. And it almost like it was almost a throwback to one day cricket in the 90s that I grew upon where a total like 240 would test teams, especially in those last 15 overs. Uh, they would leave too much uh, to, towards the end and the run rate would climb over, run a ball, the commentators would get excited and that's where we were. At, at what point did you think this might be slipping away from England? So the thing was because of uh, the atmospheric conditions in England, there's you know that there's always a chance for the bowlers. You know that even if it's six runs on over uh, the required rate, you can't write off uh, the bowling side. Whereas in India, even if it was 10 runs and over needed off the last five overs with, uh, you know, uh, three wickets in hand, you would still not rule out the... Uh, I mean, it would still be stacked in the favour of the chasing team unless they had those... those the tailenders were really bad um, because you can premeditate your shots, you can hit through the line, you can plant your foot and, you know, just go to a certain part of the ground that you favour, even if the ball is not quite there to hit. But you can't do that in England. And which is why bowlers like um, De Grand Home and even other medium pacers who some who just do enough, do a little with the ball in the air or off the pitch, are hard to get away and they pick up wickets in England. And so it, it never did seem like, you know, the game was completely gone. Even to win it, it would have to. It would take some sensible batting. It would take some doing and picking the right balls to hit. So I don't think in England there's always that feeling, especially when it's a little overcast like that day was. You never quite say that this game is done. You never quite feel like the game is done because I think as a batsman you never quite feel that you're well set and you've got a read on the conditions because the next ball can still do just enough to get you out. So I. Uh, uh, was not in a position where you know I could safely predict and say yeah that's over. Uh, rather, I was just in waiting and watching in a very cautious way. Yeah, I, I think I, I I get where where you're coming from because I think it also my opinion at that point was also largely <laughs> influenced by the fact that I was sitting with two Englishmen in the commentary box and I did my last stint of that game was between. Overs, I think 33 and 45 or so. I did you know, 12 overs. That's when New Zealand seemed to be really inching ahead. And uh, it, it felt like uh, it would all come down to Ben Stokes and it would end up being the summer of Stokes, as uh, we were reminded many times when we were there in England during the Ashes, uh, and deservedly so. And of course, I was there when he played that unbelievable knock in the Manchester Test, but or in the Leeds Test, I'm sorry. And but Back then, he was still—he was just—he was still painted as the prodigal son of English cricket when we were at Lords for the World Cup final. Um, he'd had a decent World Cup, I think, uh, and, and you know the whole focus was on Jason Roy and Jos Butler and Ben Stokes almost and Joe Root got two hundreds as well in the league games. Uh, ben Stokes was just there and thereabouts, like you know he was taking wicket scoring runs, but he hadn't done anything dramatic. 
and it all came down to him it was almost like a like a like a movie script you know the 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 villain who had been like uh who was accused or no like for good reason of having dragged england english cricket's uh image to like you know through the dirt for whatever he'd been through in the last the two years leading up to that final and now here he was poised to be the hero and uh, then things started going england's way in a way in those last two overs where which is when i believed that the luck uh was deserved a word you do not really appreciate in sport as we have learned um and things started going against new zealand and there was that so trent bowl had taken a an outstanding he's very good generally at taking catches on the just just within the boundary rope and he done so when carlos brathwaite um almost took west indies home against new zealand which would have made sure new zealand wouldn't even be there in the semi finals and he done that and he done that many times actually like he ha- in his career in the ipl as well uh, and in international cricket but then there was that opportunity ben stokes uh that would have ended the match then and there if he had clutched on but somehow the ball just hit his the, the edge of his fingers and went over the boundary that for me was the moment where it looked like the four years of hard work england had put in was paying off Yeah I think there were a lot of moments we tend to remember on these the dramatic ones especially the ones that come towards the end of a game just like in basketball in close games you remember the what happened in the last 40 seconds or 60 seconds and you remember Michael Jordan making that clutch jumper but you forget all the little misses that happened in the lead up all the you know crucial things that went your way in the lead up similarly in this game i think there were a lot of things that went england's way there were a lot of things that went new zealand's way as is going to be the case when you have a 100 over game where the margin is so small one run saved here one extra run given somewhere else one wide one no ball all makes a difference and so the human mind works in such a way that we tend to remember only the dramatic ones that happen at the end when you need four runs from five balls then you remember what happened that one run that went a misfielding that happened a catch that was dropped there were plenty of catches dropped before there was misfielding that happened before there were brilliant saves that stopped converted a three into a two or a two into a one but those don't stick in the mind so i don't think there was anything one turning point as such in that game if you look at um, the number of individual things that happened in the lead up to that last over last ball situation um there's just too many to count and too much to remember but yes now obviously if bolt had taken that catch the game would have ended it would have been a different outcome altogether um but uh, i'm very comfortable with how it did eventually end up in any case yeah me too i think i made it very obvious there but the one incident or one ball that will i guess remain etched in cricketing memories forever is, is the overthrow you talk about dropped catches and uh marginal issues like things like that which happen all the time in cricket but the the overthrow where uh, the ball came in from boundary i think it was uh, martin guptill's throw hit the back of ben stokes the bottom of his bat and went for four and that like it it, had ne- it maybe it had happened in cricket before and like many many times but never in a world cup final it, in the dying moments of a world cup final like that 
and England was involved. So it just made it a lot more dramatic and we were playing at Lords. And um, of course, Kumar Dharmasena would later on talk about how they had made a mistake and because they were England were given six runs where maybe they should have gotten only five runs, which would have meant the game wouldn't have been tied, no super over, no drama, and New Zealand would have been World Cup winners. But I have the laws of cricket book with me right now as a, a panel for umpire of the Saka. I need to carry one around with me, take a lot of pride in my umpiring, as you know, Anand Vasu. And law 19.8, which has to do with the overthrows, says uh, that the runs completed by the batsmen together with the run in progress if they had already crossed at the instant of the throw or act. This is in case the like, an overthrow goes uh, for a boundary. So I think the key point here was already crossed at the instant of the throw of act. And then replays, of course, showed that they hadn't crossed the two batsmen, uh, uh, two English batsmen, which meant that it should have been only five runs. But... Well, it's one of those things, like, it'll get discussed and spoken about. It depends on which side um, of the debate you sit on. Did Like, us, if we believe that England, like, if you're happy with the outcome eventually, or the collective mass who believe that, no, no, New Zealand were robbed of a World Cup. I don't think it has anything to do with the outcome at all. Whether it was given 4, 5, 6, 1, 7, I don't think it makes any difference because there, there are a number of decisions made during a game. Some of them will be wrong. Uh, and again, I go back to, you're only going to remember this because it was an overthrow that happened in the dying moments of the game. There were plenty of other decisions that happened earlier in the game that might or might not have been made correctly and could be questioned. I'm not saying that the right decision or right outcome was reached because I feel England should have won. I think it's a basic that anyone who plays cricket knows that umpiring mistakes will be made. It, the team that loses certainly has every right to feel aggrieved, uh, if they do. New Zealand didn't seem to feel that aggrieved in this case. They were the ones making the least fuss about this, where everyone else seemed to have uh, worked themselves up into a bit of a lather. I think it. Um, I think it's really a waste of time even sitting and talking about, you know, was that decision right, wrong, or the right number of runs awarded. Whatever was awarded was awarded. The umpires, if they made a mistake will put their hands up and uh, when they realize they made a mistake, admit their mistake and try not to make the mistake the next time, which is pretty much all that anyone can do. So true. I like the fact that you did uh, back the umpires there because, yeah, umpires don't stand out there with an MCC manual. And yes, they are expected to know all the laws of cricket, but there are just so many that at the heat of the moment, little things like that can happen. I mean, like you said, it really got accentuated because of what happened thereafter. But speaking of decisions, uh, this is my theory on how the decision was made for there to be a Super Over and a World Cup final. I think the ICC Cricket Committee just sat around before when they were planning for the tournament. And meeting was done. They were just like getting up to leave and someone said, hey, what if the World Cup final is tied? They all laughed about it and said, okay, we'll just have a Super Over. Everybody seems to like Super Overs. And then someone said, oh, Okay, what if the super over is tied? And they all again laughed about it and said, oh, whatever, just you you pick. And someone said boundary count. Where do you sit with super overs in World Cup final? Well, uh, having many friends and cricket friends who have served on cricket committees, I'm 
at the ICC and otherwise. I'm pretty sure that's not how the meeting went. I don't know what kind of meetings you've attended. And I certainly would not want to be a player in a game you umpired if this is your attitude to how these things are decided. I think it's a far more serious and robust process that's followed. And I have no problem with super overs, non-super overs, toss of coin, boundary count. I don't care how a game is decided beyond uh, play the time of play simply because any method that you're going to use is going to be arbitrary. If both the scores are tied, uh, initially it was the team that lost fewer wickets that was declared the winner, which was arbitrary because it doesn't matter how many wickets you win by as long as you actually score more runs in the opposition. Uh, someone might say whoever scored in, uh, uh, you know, f more runs at a certain point in the game, in the 40th over, whoever was higher could be declared the winner. Somebody will say more boundaries, somebody will say super over. I think there are many, many, many ways to break a tie and all of them are necessarily by their nature going to be arbitrary. As long as both teams agree on it before uh, a game begins, I don't think it makes any difference how it gets decided. Eventually, but this final was decided on a super over and eventually by boundary count. And um, I watched the last 15 minutes of that final at the back uh, of the Lord's press box. Like I said, I did not have a seat. And next to me was uh, Graham Swan, who was also done with his commentary stint. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, the one, the biggest takeaway for me from that, that final and those dying moments of that final was just this show of emotion, which I had never seen before from a collective English contingent where Graham Swan was absolutely losing his head. He was shouting and he was living every ball. Um, he was shouting directions from the back of the press box, not like anyone could have heard him. And he, 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 he was emoting after every act, every ball, whether it was someone getting, uh, getting to strike or uh, someone not running a quick two or someone, uh, an outfielder not getting to the ball quicker because you could see the desperation there. He was, he'd become an England player all over again. And he was, yeah, yeah, there were cuss words flying out of his mouth every time uh, something didn't go England's way or he thought England should have done it a certain way and they didn't. And towards the end, when, when the England finally won by the barest of margins, I, there was an explosion in the press box, explosion of emotion, explosion of delight, like the tears flowing down everyone's cheeks, who was English anyway. And uh, I remember Jamie, Jimmy Anderson running, and he was also doing commentary, running down the steps uh, of the Lord's press box, Graham Swan and Anderson hugging each other. It, it was just, it was just amazing. Like I, I, for me, you know, the stiff upper lip English uh, sports following. Of course, you see them getting all um, going all crazy in like you know f at football stadiums. But f in in with regards to cricket, it had always been the uh, the quiet applause and like you know the odd cheer here and there. And for that kind of emotion at Lords, it was just an unbelievable experience. Uh, you've been to Lords many times. What was that? Just just the last maybe five minutes of that final like. I think more than anything for a lot of English people there, it was unfamiliar. I think more than, uh, none of them 
till it actually happened believe that it would happen or could happen simply because of england's history with limited overs cricket especially with 50 over cricket so i think uh, the, that it actually happening was more of a combination of disbelief and relief for many of them that yes there isn't something uh, wrong with english cricket or uh, jinxed about english cricket that they can never win uh, i'm sure there'll be some south africans who feel that way given what they do in uh, world cups they will think that even with the best teams for some reason we just can't win uh, i think england felt like that englishmen felt like that in the lead up uh, to that despite how good their team was they did have the suspicion that the old script would play out and they would somehow find a way to mess it up and when they didn't uh, i think it took them as uh, by surprise and it was a pleasant surprise and uh, i think there's also been a change in the way uh, people watch cricket in england the kind of person who follows cricket in england some of the clichés that we trot out about the stiff upper lip and the collective crowd of lords and things like that has changed over the years just it's the composition of the fans has changed the composition of the press box has changed i uh, you know a time when uh, they would the behavior would have been very very different in the press box uh, i think what happens at a cricket stadium and in a press box is only a reflection of what is happening in society at large um a lot of it's changing and uh, was i taken aback by uh, the kind of excitement and happiness not really because if you remember india in when the 2011 world cup was won in bombay there was a similar outpouring i think winning a major tournament at home has a completely different feel to it and um i thought the reaction was quite uh, commensurate uh, to the occasion it was also such a uh, exciting game irrespective of whether you were english new zealand or neutral uh, the match then the super over and uh, just like extending into it like the heightened tension was kept alive for a longer period of time than anyone anticipated it would be and so when it ended there was a release for everyone whether it was whether you were happy or disappointed or just trying to come to grips with what happened i think it was a, a question of something uh, the occasion and the intensity being heightened for a long period of time and then just releasing yeah it did feel like a release of uh, i don't know how long they had been waiting for people in that press box especially and um, and you're right you spoke about how the english crowd is changing just the way they react to um victory and defeat i saw that a lot during the ashes uh, and we'll speak about that uh, another day uh and just like you know also what stood out for me was the press conference that followed i speak a lot in pro wrestling terms which you don't really appreciate and there are faces in heels and baby faces and ultra heels and owen morgan walked in having won the world cup with the world cup trophy and the the reaction he got was a lot more tepid than the reaction Kane Williamson got the, the baby face of that tournament i guess he came he even when he was leaving there was he got a standing ovation if you remember uh, which is which i'd never seen before in a press conference room uh, and yeah i am a very objective journalist on and was but i get, i get what you mean about uh, not usually seeing that at a press conference and uh, but also um I think because of the manner in which Williamson conducted himself the manner in which he represented New Zealand 
not going down the road of saying we were robbed or uh, you know luck wasn't with us or he didn't make any excuses at all and it didn't seem like a put on act it didn't seem like you know he was trying to pacify an angry crowd it was just that he understood genuinely that yes in a game of cricket there are small margins things go your way sometimes things don't go your way sometimes and life goes on i mean it's very hard for anyone to treat defeat and victory with such you know an equanimity and um, the fact that he did i think is what uh, took everyone um, by surprise it, it just warmed everyone's hearts that someone who was in the middle of it to whom it meant so much could actually behave like that you recommend that someone should behave like that but you don't think it's humanly possible uh, it just reaffirmed everything that uh, people believed about williamson and his team being actually just genuinely good guys rather than them behaving well on a cricket field which is why i think there was a lot more emotion around him than around owen morgan and as for england winning uh, while they perhaps were a, a little uh, on the back foot then the press and the fans in the immediate aftermath the celebrations have still are still going on it's not like they ever lose a chance to remind you how well england did so i think uh, i felt particularly happy at the way williamson not only uh, uh, conducted himself but to the fact that it was acknowledged and that he got the reaction that he did yeah i'll be honest i wasn't like on the i wasn't i didn't buy that much into the whole love around williamson in the lead up and to that final and just after that final but in subsequently Uh, in the subsequent months i've gotten to know him a little bit better and yeah he i think he deserves all the love he gets he is genuinely one of the nicest people i've ever met in my life and uh, i think he made the term it is what it is sexy in 2019 if nothing uh, because that continued through those tour of australia as well um yeah and we spoke about um, we've spoken so much about the cricket and the excitement and all that happened there but i can't let you go without asking you what cake stood out for you that day at the lord's press box you can't uh, you ask me to choose between fast bowlers or batsmen or all rounders that's all right it's an easy task choosing between cakes at the lord press, lord's press box is an impossibility um there's just too many of them that are too good the only uh, difficulty is that they're also very generous in their portions they're massive so as much as you want to eat all of them and as greedy as you are you will end up eating all of them at some point during the day unless you have insane self control which i personally do not when it comes to lords and cakes um i can't remember ever tasting one that disappointed or was a letdown it looks unreal it looks like no no one should be able to make a cake like this and then just set it out for 50 hungry journalists to or greedy journalists to rip into and demolish in a few minutes which is what always happens but yes i can't remember tasting one bad cake at uh, lords i've enjoyed every single one of them yeah and uh, i was fortunate enough to stay back and have a lot more cakes during the ashes i think for me the red velvet really stood out and so did the carrot cake not as sweet as the red velvet but uh, texturally and just in terms of the right amount of sweetness it just it it was just perfect it hit all the perfect notes 
I get that you're watching a lot of MasterChef these days. Uh, from being cricket reporter, you're devolving, I think, into uh, also getting. Uh, maybe you'll be writing about food and uh, covering uh, cakes uh, at Lords at some point in the future, which is a good thing to do. There's uh, there's a big world out there outside of cricket, and good to see you embracing it. I just eat the cakes. I can't <laughs> tell you what the textures were like and what the whether it was sweet enough or not. If it tastes good, I eat it. <laughs> well yeah it, till the time they not they don't have chocolate in them i'm happy to write about and taste any cake that is out there more color the better and yeah i mean just to end this episode yeah for me the like to the world cup final was as exciting as it was uh it, there was a ten tinge of like bitter sweetness to it because i had to go back to the camper van that was the end of the camper van journey of course it meant that uh, i was moving out of my cramped quarters in the van to a much bigger bed uh, and having to no longer spend uh, day in like you know the whole day and the whole night within a cramped van with another male person and so uh, yeah i was looking forward to it of course i still had two and a half months left in england Uh, and uh, many more journeys to make with my luggage in tow uh so speaking of journeys i think uh, for episode 4 we go to south africa and back to test cricket back in 2013 december the first test post the sachin tendulkar era uh we were there to see the birth of new india in a way and uh what a dramatic test match that turned out to be it ended up as a draw but it could have gone any way uh, i mean the all four results as they say was possible till the very last ball and we will get to that till then thank you anand vasu for being with us for episode 3 of press box 2020 and thank you for listening to us until next time thank you you can find us on spotify iTunes and wherever else you get your podcast from hit download subscribe and don't forget to give us a five star rating if you think we've earned it also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at pressbox2020 that's pressbox2020